His name truly is the name above all other names. That's why we come together. That's why we sing, because He is worthy. He deserves our praise. Well, um, last week we started a study in the, fir- in the book of 1 John. We are in the epistle of 1 John together. And the idea in uh, uh, this study is that God desires that we can have a sure faith. We, we can know uh, by looking at God's Word, by examining our hearts, where we stand with God. Um, last week, we looked at this idea in, in 1 John uh, verses 1 through 4, that, God's, uh, that our relationship with God rests on real facts about the incarnation. But real faith is still necessary. And so today, we're going to be looking at this truth that real faith always leads to real change. I think the book of 1 John it can be incredibly helpful and encouraging for those of us that uh, perhaps are new believers or those of us that have had the privilege of leading someone to Christ. This is a book where I would point you to say, hey, this is a great place in the Bible to start reading because one of the things that John is doing is there are some false teachers that have arisen and they're not teaching the true gospel. They're not teaching how to actually know God anymore. And so he's saying, here's ways that you can differentiate yourself from someone who just knows about Christ to someone who actually knows Christ. And so I believe 1 John uh, can be a really exciting book for us as we study together over the next couple of weeks. Um, God does want us to have clarity about whether or not we know him, but I think God also wants us to examine our hearts. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says uh, in chapter 7 of the book of Matthew, perhaps some of the most haunting words that you find in Scripture. He says this, Not everyone who cries out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who cries out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then when the people who want to be in heaven, but are not going to be permitted in, uh, they, they try to argue and reason with God to say, let us in. Their argument is this, We've done great things in the name of Jesus. We've done many works in Jesus' name. They reference this idea of doing great works. And Jesus' response is really important. Jesus says, on that day, I will say to them, Away from me, I never knew you. And his response, I think, indicates something that is crucial. And that's this. Jesus, before he is interested in any good works that we would ever do, he is interested in a living, thriving, and dynamic relationship with us, that we would follow him as the Lord and Savior of our lives, and that we would live daily in a real, actual relationship, that we would know him and that he would know us. And so I think this is where many people get stuck. If we were to take a poll and we were to go out into our community and ask people, How do you know that you're going to get into heaven today? I think most people, in fact, when I did this at seminary, I I went and knocked on doors. Most people's answer was this. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I think that's how I'm going to get into heaven is because I'm a pretty good person. There's a problem with this. The problem is this question. Okay, you're a pretty good person, but how good is good enough? If, If we're going to rest on our works to get us into heaven, then what is it? What's the standard? Because that's a pretty important question. If we're not going to make the cut, we need to know. And here's what John is going to say to us this morning is that's not the gospel. That's not what it means to know Jesus Christ. We don't earn our way to him. We're not going to be good enough for him because his, his standard is holy, perfection. And all of us have fallen short of that. 
No one's going to make that cut. And so we have hope, we have good news because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me in taking our sin and shame upon himself and dying on the cross in our place and then rising again three days later because he defeated sin and the grave. And so this morning I want us to jump back into 1 John chapter 1. We'll be in verses 5 through 10 together this morning. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for the privilege uh, to come into this room to sing praises to you, God, to hear your word preached. And Lord, as we hear your word this morning, God, we ask that this would not just be a part of our routine, God, that you would help us to be still and to remember and know that you are God, that we would not be distracted by anything that may have happened earlier this morning, that we wouldn't be distracted by things that wait on us this afternoon, but God, that we would hear from you. And so, Lord, we thank you uh, that you are able, more than able, to do that this morning. We ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the main idea this morning is this, knowing the light. If we truly know the light of the world, then we will walk in the light. Knowing the light leads to walking in the light, period. It's guaranteed. There are no qualifiers. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. If we know the light of the world, then we will walk in that light. And there is... Something true that I'm about to say that is true of every single person that's in this room, every, actually every single person that's on the planet. doesn't matter our age, doesn't matter our race, doesn't matter previous religions, doesn't matter any of these things. What I'm about to say is true of each and every one of us, and that is this. We are born into darkness. We are born into darkness. God is light, but you and I, when we entered the world, we were born into darkness, we were born into sin. We were born into self-love. We were born into rebellion and living as if we were God. We wanted our way. And then, I, I, here's how I know this. Here's how I know this. Um, the past several weeks, many of you have heard me talk about my son, baby John. And uh, if you're getting tired of that, I'm sorry. There'll be a few more weeks, and then he'll be too old, and I won't be able to talk about him anymore and use him as an example in these services. But... Um, John is about 10 months old, and, and he's a lot of fun right now. But one of the fascinating things about John is he sits in his high chair, and we're feeding him you know, from the little uh, Gerber food bottles or whatever. And apparently there, there are these moments in the life of King John where we're not getting the spoon from the here fast enough to his mouth, okay? And so he'll do this thing where he'll stop, and he'll look at you, and he'll squint his little eyes, and he'll kind of go... <sighs> And he'll kind of huff and puff, and then he'll take a sippy cup, and he'll slam it down on the table as if to say, you better be glad my little baby arms can't reach you. Because if they could, I'd smack you, right? And so he's looking at us, and he's expressing this anger. 
The question is this, where did that come from? Because I'm not going around huffing and puffing at Tara or at Audrey. I'm not going around punching the walls or anything like that in my house. Where did John learn to display this behavior? The, the answer is this. He's born into darkness, just like you, just like me. We're all broken. We're all self-oriented to put ourselves first. And so the good news this morning that I want us to see in verses 5 and 6, and this is the foundation. We have to start here and get this part right is that we are born in darkness, but God is light. And that is good news. So I want us to look at verses 5 and 6 again very quickly. It says, This is the message we have heard from him or proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we, we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so John is helping us by starting with a belief first. He starts with the belief first. He's going to tell us what we need to do in light of that belief in just a minute. But he starts with a right belief. And that is believing and knowing, being convinced that God is light. And so then the question very quickly follows, well, then what does that mean? When we say God is light, what are the implications? What's being actually said? The first thing that I would submit to you, we talked a little bit about it actually last week, is that God is the giver of life. God is the giver of life. Um, when we look at our sun, when we look at our planet, we know the thing that is in many ways giving our planet life is our sun. If our sun were to, for some reason, disappear tomorrow, our planet would perish in a freezing darkness. The sun is what gives us life, and it gives us life through the light that it emits. And so perhaps you've had this experience. I think it, it kind of illustrates it in a, a very personal and real way. But uh, maybe you've had an experience like this. It's a spring morning, and it's early spring. The, the winter is starting to finally kind of give way to the coming summer. And so for the, one of the very first times, the, the sunshine is warm. But it's early. And if you're standing outside, and you happen to be kind of next to a building, and you're under a shadow, or you're under a tree... How does it feel when you're in the shade? It's cold, right? It's really cold. But all you have to do is just step out of that and step into the sunlight, and what happens? Suddenly, your face warms, your skin loosens, your shoulders drop. You can literally feel the sun giving light and life to the world, waking it back up from the winter. And friends, this is what God does for those of us who know Jesus Christ. This is what he does for us. He gives us life because his enduring presence, his undying love, his everlasting peace, his unending grace grant us a new perspective, a new energy, a new way to walk through life knowing that my power is not what has to sustain me. My goodness, my righteousness is not what has to get me to heaven. It's Jesus. And so we can find peace in him. If you turn anywhere else, you'll never find peace like the peace that Jesus gives. You'll never find grace like the grace of God. You'll never find joy like his. It all fades away, but just like the light of our universe, it doesn't fade. It endures. God's power in our lives endures. So God is light. One of the things it means is that he is eternal life. The other idea when, or when John is saying that God is light, I believe, is this idea, that God is unchanging truth. You see, the light, again, doesn't change. In many ways, actually, light is one of the governing uh, realities of our universe. 
We, we measure things out in the universe by the speed of light. And so the standard is set by light itself for us in many ways. And here's what God does for us. God, because he is creator and because he is unchanging, he is the standard. And here's what that means. Hebrews 13.8 says it this way. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And at first blush, that may not seem like anything real revolutionary. That may not seem like incredible news, but I want to tell you that it is because in a fallen world, change is constant and change is guaranteed. Listen to me. People change. Places change. Your work will change. Your health will change. This church will change. You will change. I will change. God doesn't change. Praise God for that. That is good news. Have you ever heard the parental saying, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed? You ever heard that saying? Again, this is good news. God doesn't say that. You know why? Because God doesn't change. He's never disappointed. God already has all the information that there ever is to have. And so there's never any new information that's coming in that's changing his perspective. You see, if God could change, then that would mean perhaps in some way that our actions could influence him. That's a scary thought. If my actions could somehow influence God's approval or love for me, guess what? I'm in trouble. But because God doesn't change, because when he looks at at me and any who trust in him, he doesn't look at my behavior, he doesn't look at my righteousness, he looks at the righteousness of Jesus Christ and what he has done on my behalf, then my future is set. My future is secure. I'm safe in him. God always hates sin with a furious wrath. Always. He always loves his children with a fearless and faithful love that never ends. Today, this moment, he feels towards his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. A.W. Tozer said that. And that is wonderful, good news. Praise God that he doesn't change. But that also means this, that if God doesn't change and we live in a constantly changing world, then that God... And not anything else or anyone else is our standard for truth. And that's important. God is unchanging truth. Our current culture has a massive problem with this idea. We want to redefine marriage. We want to redefine gender and sexuality. We want to redefine truth itself. I teach an ethics course at the collegiate level. And one of the fascinating things is I sit in that ethics course weekly. And at the beginning of the semester, I'll ask this question. Is truth absolute or is truth relative? And I'll kind of pull the class. And guess what the class says? Truth is relative. It changes constantly. It changes from culture to culture. It changes from place to place. And it's a fascinating thing because then the question very quickly becomes is, okay, well then is it wrong to murder people? Place to place, culture to culture. Is two plus two, does it equal four? Place to place, culture to culture. Can people fly? Can humans fly place to place, culture to culture? The answer is no, right? There are certain truths that are absolute. And so one of the things then that we have to understand is that in many ways an attempt to redefine truth is actually the sin of the garden. Adam and Eve, what did they say? There was an apple. There's nothing wrong with eating, or we didn't know it was an apple, excuse me. There was an uh, unspecified fruit. 
There's an unspecified fruit. And we don't know. There's nothing wrong with eating a fruit, right? So why was it so wrong to eat that fruit? Why did they eat of that and surely die? The reason is, is because God had spoken it. God is the standard of truth. And God said, if you do this, you will surely die. And here's what they did. They heard that, they received it at first, and then they did exactly what we all do. Did God really say? Did God really say that? And so they chose, we will redefine truth for ourselves. We'll see what happens. And just as God had spoken it, so it happened. They surely died. They began to die spiritually in a separation from a perfect, loving Father, a perfect, almighty Creator. And we are no different. One of the most backward and dangerous things that we can do is attempt to determine truth for, itself, for ourselves when truth is staring us in the face. We have been given the truth of God. It is here. It is living. It is active. It is available to you and to me in His Word. The question is, do we take the time to value it? Do we take the time to know it? Again, redefining truth is dangerous. Uh, in our culture, in, in youth culture, there was this challenge or a fad that was going around. And it was actually incredibly dangerous. It was called the Tide Pod Challenge. Has anybody ever heard of this? The Tide Pod Challenge. And uh, it actually was incredibly problematic uh, recently because there is a truth. And the truth is the human body is not made to ingest lots and lots of detergent. Believe it or not, that's a reality. And so there was this reality... Uh, and these Tide Pods are these little packets of plastic with concentrated detergent that's meant to be used in a washer. But someone had the bright idea to say, I want to see if I can eat this. And in trying to eat this, uh, there were some actually very tragic results. Many uh, teenagers got very sick and had to be hospitalized. Some even died. But the Tide Pod Challenge lived on. There was so much so that uh, a famous football player by the name of Rob Gronkowski, Tide, recruited him and said, hey, we want you to make a video and help us to get the attention of teenagers to say, stop this. And so there's this silly video of him on the Internet just saying, no, 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 no. He's just holding the Tide pod thing, and he's saying it over and over again. Why did teenagers not listen to that message when they knew the truth? I believe it's this thought. I know that eating Tide laundry detergent has killed and hurt other people, but it won't hurt me. I'm different. I'm different. I'll do something differently than some of the other people did. I'll prepare myself or I'll, I'll spit it out faster. I'll do something different. And friends, listen to me. This is exactly what you and I do with sin. It's poison. God has spoken to us and said, if you do this, it will hurt your marriage. If you do this... It will ruin the relationships with your family. If you do this, you will surely die. And yet many of us eat the Tide Pod anyway because we're different. We try to redefine truth for ourselves. God is the standard of truth. When, the, when John says that God is light, He is unchanging. He is the standard. And we must listen and obey and follow His truth or... Reap what we sow. So not only do we see that God is light, I want us to see the second thing this morning. We need to have the right belief that God is light, but we also need to have the right response. 
the right response, that is to walk in the light. Let's look at verses 7 through 10 this morning. 7 through 10. It says this, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. The Greek word that is translated walk is an interesting word because it does include this idea of walking, but it's actually much more than simply walking. It includes the idea of you're walking around, going about daily living life. And so it's your daily life, all that you do each and every day, moment by moment. And he's saying this, we must walk daily, regularly, minute by minute, moment after moment in the light. So what does that mean? If this is going to be one of the signs that John is giving us as to how we can know if we have a thriving and active and a real relationship with Jesus, then what is he talking about? I would point you to verse 9, the very first phrase there. It says this, If we confess our sins. If we confess our sins. What is he talking about? He's talking about this idea of repentance. Repentance. I believe if we're going to walk in the light, we must live a life of repentance. You see, he says it right here. If we say that we have no sin, we call God a liar. John 16, 8 says this. So the same author writing the Gospel of John in chapter 16, verse 8, he says, The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. One of the roles that God has, one of the things that God just does because of who He is, is that He convicts us of sin. It is a part of what God does. And so I think it is very important for each and every one of us as people who know Jesus Christ to just embrace this truth. It doesn't matter how long I've been a Christian, I will always constantly be in a war against sin. I am a fallen individual, and I am not perfect yet. That's coming for me someday in heaven when I'm glorified. That's coming, but I have not arrived yet. I'm not there yet. And so while I'm here on this earth, I have to practice a lifestyle of repentance. And we have to be careful here, especially those of us that have grown up in church. And we have this, this idea to say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. So I don't know that I have to like constantly be repenting. I don't know that I have to constantly be walking in this, this kind of sad state of repentance. And I would say, no, God doesn't want us to walk in condemnation. God doesn't want us to walk around with, with guilt hanging over our heads and and be living these guilt-ridden lifestyles. But God does desire that we examine our hearts and that we daily turn them over to Him as we walk through life. I'll give you an example. Before I do that, I want to just give you one verse. Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9, the prophet says this, The heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? Who can cure it? You see, our hearts are incredibly deceitful. Jesus talks about it this way. He says, before you go to your brother and try to take the speck out of his eye, what do you need to do? We need to take the log out of our own eye, right? Why? Because we can see other people's sin. We can see it from a mile away. But it's very hard to see our own sin because our hearts are deceitful. 
because we love our way. We love ourselves. And when we are wrong, we give ourselves extra room, extra courtesy, extra leverage that we wouldn't give to other people. Um, and so I think one of the terms that, that, that we're known by in our culture, and it's a sad thing, but oftentimes churches, Christians are known by this word hypocrite. Right? We're called hypocrites. Why? Because we're not perfect. We still do sin. We still do mess up. And if we're not careful, we'll live lives of unrepentance. And what I think we need to just come to a place to be able to say together is this. Churches are not places for perfect people. But churches are places for repentant people. So I'm not perfect. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to fall short. But here's the difference. I don't love my sin anymore. There was a time where I loved my sin and I was happy in it and I would go back to it over and over and over again. But now that I'm saved, God is changing my heart. He's changing my mind. He's renewing my mind to help me see and understand that sin is poison. That sin is slavery. That sin is death. And so I don't want to go back to that anymore. I want to live what Jesus has for me. Jesus' rules suddenly, instead of a burden that weighs me down, the, the things that Jesus tells us suddenly become life. They become freeing. I understand he's protecting me from the very things that would kill me. And so it's a joy to obey Jesus. I'll give you an example of, I think, where many of us need to practice repentance. Um, studies show that most people who claim to be Christians now never actually read the Bible in their lifetime. They never read it all the way through. Studies also show that pastors actually spend less sometimes than 30 minutes a week in the Bible. It's fascinating. But here's what I think applying this idea of repentance looks like. Rather than having the thought perhaps in the morning that I should read my Bible and I don't want to, and just moving on, going on to the next thing, perhaps we should stop and ask this question. Why don't I want to read my Bible today. See, we need to study our hearts. What's going on in my heart that's telling me that I don't need to spend time with the one who loves me most and loves me best? Is it because I'm worried about what is awaiting me in just a few minutes? Is it because I'm consumed with entertaining myself, and so from the moment I wake up, I grab my cell phone, and I'm on Facebook, and I'm reading my email, and I'm watching the news is it because that I've got some secret sin in my life and I'm running from God? Why don't I want to spend time with the lover of my soul? See, something's wrong. And once I identify whatever that thing is, I need to run to Jesus. I need to run to him and confess my sinful heart. Lord, I know this is not right, but this is where I'm at. And I need you to change my heart. Because guess what, friends? We don't have the power to change our hearts. But thank God Jesus does. Thank God that he can change our desires. And so this is what it looks like to live a life of repentance. Every one of us, I believe, ought to lay awake in our beds at night. Again, not in condemnation, not saying woe is me over and over and over again, but asking God to help us see and understand our own hearts the way that he does. Asking for discernment to see the places that we're blind that our lives don't reflect His glory and goodness. I want to remind you this morning, perhaps you're here and, and I'm talking about repentance a whole lot right now and it's just kind of hitting you in the head and bouncing off. You're like, I don't really 
feel like I want to do that. I don't really feel like I need that. I want to remind you why this is true, that you want to be someone who lives repentantly. And the reason is 1 John 1, 9. Let's just look at this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some, not the little ones, and if you really mess up, He doesn't forgive you of the big ones. No, all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what you're about to do in the future. God is a God of incredible and infinite grace, and He will forgive if you will bow the knee, you will confess your sins, and you will follow Him. Can I get an amen to that? That's good news, guys. That's, thank you. There it is. That's good news. We need that. We need to be assured of that. We need to be reminded of that truth. And you see, this is where grace becomes scandalous. Here's what I mean. For those of us who know Jesus, there is, again, never-ending, never-growing-weary, never-running-out, inexhaustible and infinite grace for us. And so someone might say, well, so Michael... If grace, if God's grace towards me is infinite, doesn't that mean that I can just sin and just confess it and sin and just confess it and sin and just confess it? Doesn't that mean I can just do that and I get a a free ticket to live however I want to live? The answer is no. If you're having those thoughts, if those thoughts are running through your mind, then I would say to you, friend, examine yourself carefully because you may not know the light. And here's why. If you really understand that our sin is darkness, that our sin is what causes us to stumble around and causes pain, that literally sin is the reason. Listen to me. Sin is the reason that there is illness and sickness and cancer and disease and pain and suffering in this world. That is why those things are here. They are the results of sin. So if that's true, why would I ever want to go back to that? You see, if we really are walking in the light and we really know the light and we understand, wow, God's ways really are best. Jesus gives me his word not to to slow me down or drag me down or keep me from having fun. Jesus gives me his word because this is where my best life is going to be found. I don't want to go back. And this is what it looks like to walk in the light. This is what it looks like to know him And so we must be careful to ask ourselves, am I living a lifestyle of repentance? Do I see places in my life, patterns, where I'm purposefully examining my heart and trying to yield myself to the lover of my soul? Am I willing to do that? Not only must we live lives of repentance, I want us to see one other thing, and we're going to talk about it a lot more next week. But I want us to just go ahead and make the connection this week. Paul actually, or excuse me, John actually gives two other indicators of whether or not that we know him uh, in chapter 2, actually. The first one is obedience, that we would continue to obey God. We'll talk about that next week. But the second one is love, that we would be marked by a love for our brothers. Look at 1 John chapter 2. It's probably on the very same page in your Bible. 1 John chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So 
I just want to give you a very quick thought, because like I said, we're going to unpack it a lot more next week. But one of the ways, and one of the areas that I think oftentimes we're slowest to repent, we're slowest to yield to God and to turn back to Him, is in our relationships. I think it's easy for us to be harmed or hurt by someone. It's easy for us to be maligned by someone, perhaps a believer, perhaps not a believer, and to harbor anger and to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. And John says it very plainly. If you harbor hatred in your heart towards a brother or sister in Christ, this is a sign. Be careful. You may not know the light. You may not be walking in the light. Be very, very careful. And so I would just give you this idea. In a car, it's actually impossible to open up the tank and see how much gas is inside, right? You can't actually see physically when you fill it up how much gas there really is in there. Where do you have to look? That's right. You look at the fuel gauge. You look at your dashboard. And as the needle moves, it is meant to reflect and mirror exactly how much gas is in the tank. So if the needle is at half full, the tank should be at half full. If it's at empty, the tank should be at empty. If you ask me today, how do I know that I can love God? I believe I love Him, but I want to know. I would say, look at the gauge. The love that you have for your brother is the measure, excuse me, is the measure of your love for God. If you walk around and you're wrapped and warped in bitterness and anger, examine yourself. Examine your heart. And so, friends, here's the important thing that we have to go back to, and we're going to talk about it again a lot more next week. These are the actions, but we have to start with repentance. You see, if we start with trying to say, I'm going to be a better lover, I'm going to love more people, the mark of God uh, is going to be on my life, and I'm going to be a, a person of love but we haven't started with repentance, we can't. If we say, I'm going to obey Jesus and I'm going to do really good and I'm going to fix my behavior and I'm going to start doing the right things and lay these sins down and leave them behind, listen to me, you won't. You might be able to cope for a little bit, but you have to actually repent. You have to say and be convinced in your hearts, God's way is best. I don't want this thing anymore. And so I'm going to turn and I'm going to follow Jesus the rest of my days. So I just want to ask you this morning, if real faith leads to real change, and one of those signs is repentance, are you living that? Do you see it clearly in your own life? If you're not, then you may not be walking in the light. But again, here's the good news. The starting place is the same for each and every one of us. All we have to do is repent. And you can do that today. You can do that today. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you.